Every now and then, American film presents us with a director that is so different, so unique, and so American that their films can't quite be compared to any other filmmaker. My director series is always focused on a director or directors that are different in some way, even if their films are not. Doris Wishman made shitty exploitation films and wasn't a particularly good director, but she was the only woman doing it. William Castle made pretty run-of-the-mill horror knockoffs, but invented theater gimmicks which gave audiences something to talk about for years after they had forgotten the mediocre movie. Russ Meyer made an entire career of making movies around women with huge boobs, and managed to make at least one American classic along the way. And the Finlays were exploitation's first couple, with Roberta being the first female DP camerawoman in film history. I've saved the best for last. John Waters. Can't help it, girl, can't help it. Gentlemen of the press, get ready, because you are about to witness the biggest news event of the year. Live homicide. Can't help it, girl, Yes, folks, this isn't any cheap X-rated movie or any fifth-rate porno play. This is the show you want. Lady Divine's Cavalcade of Perversion. The sleaziest show on Earth. Can't help it, no, can't help it. Not actors, not paid imposters, but real, actual filth who have been carefully screened in order to present to you the most flagrant violation of natural law known to man. I guess there's just two kinds of people, Miss Sandstone. My kind of people and assholes. It's rather obvious which category you fit into. I'm worried that you'll work in an office, have children, celebrate wedding anniversaries. The world of heterosexual is a sick and boring life. Never have I encountered such a morally bankrupt group of people. Uh, Not only are you selfish and vicious, but you have no feeling for the cares of your loved one. What are they? Those are your new shoes, Don. Those aren't the right kind. I told you, shots on your black one. Nice girls don't wear cha-cha heels. I hate you, fuck you. Fuck you, fuck you, all of you. You're not my parents. I hate you, I hate this outside Christmas. <laughs> John's simultaneously horrified and delighted audiences with a 300-pound drag queen named Divine, cannibalism, foot fetishes, a party performer with a singing anus, a 15-foot rapist lobster, and a rosary dildo. And that's just his first four films. He's my favorite director of all time, so do whatever you need to do to prepare yourself as I present part one of my two-parter on John Waters, the Prince of Puke. The girl can't help it, she's in love with me. Can't help it, the girl can't help it. Slums of Film History, a lowbrow look into the high art of cinema. Every episode is an in-depth look into a niche topic of film that is normally not discussed in polite company. I'm Slate. And I'm Tom. And each week, one of us researches our respective topic, writes an episode, and then schools the other. We discuss everything from murderous gays, to evil Santas, to horny nuns. If there's a film subject too taboo, we haven't found it yet. Welcome.
Hi, Tom. Hey, Slate. How are you? Good, good. Finally here. Finally doing this. That's good. That's yeah. excellent. We've had a huge number of people ask when we were going to do this. One of them was listener Sarah, I remember, right in the first season asking, are we going to do John Waters? And I was like, it's coming, it's coming. Yeah. And then, of course, four seasons later, I'm finally doing it. Yeah, I've heard some people that listen to the podcast, too, some friends of mine, and they've asked the same thing. Yeah. It's funny because so many episodes of this are just coming full circle right around back to the first season. So I right, feel like right. it's appropriate. I did kind of want to make sure that I did it some justice and we'll see if I did. It's long, so two-parter. Yeah, yeah, I'm excited to hear it though. Okay, so I had to do a bunch of soul searching with this episode because as I'm sure you know, John Waters is my favorite director of all oh, time. Oh yes, I know. And I know a lot about him, but so does kind of everyone. He's still alive, you know, and he's making speeches. He's he's doing appearances, mm-hmm. which I know you saw him not oh, too yeah. long ago. You know, he's writing books and, you know, so, so it's not like the Finlays or something else of where I had to like dig up all this information about something that nobody knew about. You know, Roberta Finlay doesn't really even talk about her previous film career anymore. Right. So it was like I had to dig really far back and try to find interviews with her and stuff like that. Sure, sure. But John Waters, all the information is out there already. Yeah. So the main thing that I had to do was I watched all of his movies. So I watched every single John Waters movie and then I went back and watched it again with the director's commentary and just scribbled notes. So I've now seen every John Waters movie and then right after that seen the director's commentary. So it gave me a lot of movies to watch. I've spent a lot of time watching John Waters movies, all of which I had seen a million times before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But so long story short, I'm just going to try to tell some of the stories that maybe you might not have heard before. Some of the stories that he told during the director's commentaries. I've read all of his books too, so kind of all those things and maybe not talk about like the things that kind of everybody knows okay so we'll see if i can do this some justice all right great john waters was born in 1946 in a pretty affluent suburb of baltimore it's called lutherville as i'm sure you know baltimore plays like a huge part in all of the john waters movies there isn't a single movie that was filmed anywhere other than baltimore so baltimore to him was obviously like a very big part of his growing up the Waters family were super, super normal. They were a Catholic family, and they were really, really white bread, kind of middle class, you know, in the 50s. And John Waters, like, wasn't having that from the beginning. He did terrible in school. He cut classes all the time. And he was obsessed with the movies that the nuns at his Catholic school would condemn. So just to put this into context, we're talking around 1956 to 1960. Yeah. And the movies he wasn't allowed to see were And God Created Woman, starring Bridget Bardot. Okay. Which I might add is now rated PG, which I find hilarious. Oh, yeah. Mom and Dad, which we've mentioned numerous times, that was the <laughs> yeah. kind of like exploitation slash documentary that came out. Yeah. And of course, Elia Kazan's Baby Doll from 1956, whose billboard had a 19-year-old Carol Baker lying in a crib sucking her thumb. But John would sneak into the drive-ins and watch through binoculars from afar. Oh, that's amazing. He also loved Russ Meyer movies and especially William Castle movies and saw them over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. He loved car crashes. He loved circus sideshows. He loved Little Rick. Richard, and he loved reading about local crimes in the newspaper. That was like kind of his childhood in a nutshell. Yeah. But what he loved the most out of anything else in his early teens was juvenile delinquents. He loved especially girl juvenile delinquents and started making friends with anyone that was perceived as an outcast at school. If you were a freak, a queer, did bad in school, smoked, were held back a grade, were trailer trash, if you'd mm-hmm. been arrested, had huge hair, had acne, like John wanted to be your friend. Right. He and his Baltimore freak show friends would do drugs, watch movies, and shoplift mostly. Awesome. His grandmother gave him an 8mm camera for his 17th birthday, and that combined with a bunch of stolen film from a friend that worked at a camera store, he shot his first short film on the roof of his parents' house called Hag in a Black Leather Jacket. (laughs) 
Hag in a Black Leather Jacket is about a white girl that marries a black man in a ceremony performed by a KKK member. Oh, God. The guests are all in drag, wearing weird costumes, and one of them does a dance called the Bodhi Green, which was considered obscene at the time. The closing title, The End, is flushed down the toilet. John convinced a downtown Baltimore beatnik coffee house to screen the film, and he made about $30, but that was pretty much the end of the road for Hag in a Black Leather Jacket. Hmm. He tried to peddle it around town, but a 15-minute racial drag show wedding didn't really get much traction. I'm surprised. Hmm? Around this time, John actually got into college at the University of Baltimore and then NYU Film School, amazingly. He says that he never went to classes anyway and made money stealing books and selling them back to the college bookstore. <laughs> he spent the days watching mid-60s films like Andy Warhol's The Chelsea Girls and Kenneth Anger's Scorpio Rising until he was kicked out of school for smoking pot. He moved back to Baltimore, did more drugs, went back and forth between New York and Provincetown in Baltimore, kind of had a job sometimes, and made a second short film called Roman Candles in 1966. Oh, okay. So before you go any further, are any of these short films released anywhere else? glad you asked. So no, the only one which I'll talk about in a second, which is the Diane Linkletter story is available online. But for years and years and years, they just stayed in his attic. And he said where they belong. So he's not particularly proud of his older short films. I went to go see him. The Film Center at Lincoln Society did kind of like a retrospective of all of his work. He was there. I saw Female Trouble there. And he had brought his short films and he screened them. And I will never forget what they said was, they're going to put them in the reel. They're going to run them through. And if they break, they break. But Mm -hmm. if not, then everybody can watch them. And he kind of talked about him. I didn't go see that exhibit. I only saw him do Female Trouble. But no, they're not available online. And he kind of like keeps them close and only will show them if he's, you know, kind of like in the same room. So gotcha. Okay. All right. Interesting. Roman Candles was the screen debut of one of John's newer friends named Glenn Milstead, who John later nicknamed Divine. Oh, wow. Divine was an overweight, feminine, and shy kid that loved movies, loved dressing in drag, and especially loved Elizabeth Taylor. Hmm. He had gone to beauty school, but that didn't really work out so well, and was working at his mom's beauty shop when John decided to cast him in a small, uncredited part in Roman Candles, which was his first color film. Roman Candles was supposed to be a suburban shocker and feature three different reels of film that were all projected at one time, side by side. Okay. The soundtrack was radio ads, John Waters' 45 Records collection, and interviews with Lee Harvey Oswald's mother. The three reels had a nun making out with a priest, a real-life heroin junkie shooting up, an S&M version of These Boots Are Made for Walking, and a 300-pound fag hag eating a bowl of fruit. (laughs) So that's kind of the gist of Roman Candles. What year was this? 1966. Okay, cool. John doesn't really speak very highly of Roman Candles, although it did give him the first kind of inklings of how to start promoting his films. Gotcha. He convinced a reverend to let him do three screenings of Roman Candles at a church and self-publicized it in tandem with an art festival that was popular in the art scene. He and the cast and their friends all showed up and made a big spectacle and all three showed up. So they showed up in, you know, cars and costumes and, you know, they had like fake people like taking pictures, like fake paparazzi and stuff like that. Right, right, right. He even got a few press pieces written about him and the film. He followed that up with the short film Eat Your Makeup from 1968. Eat Your Makeup was probably the first attempt at telling a more structurally traditional narrative, Mm -hmm. meaning that there's a beginning, a middle, and an end. Roman Candles was just a whole bunch of stuff. Sure. John got the idea from an ad from those candy lipsticks that were really popular at the Mm -hmm. time. Rough plot, a deranged nanny kidnaps young models and death threats them to model in front of their bosses. They were tortured and forced to eat their makeup, and they model so hard that they die from, quote, fashion exhaustion. 
It even had a reenactment of the Kennedy assassination with Divine as Jackie Kennedy. Oh my God. Eat Your Makeup had its first screening in Baltimore, but depending on who you ask, the censors tried to shut it down with the IRS, so therefore he wasn't allowed to sell tickets. He had to take donations instead, and most people walked out in the middle or didn't even donate at the end. Right. One of the lead characters ended up dying a few weeks later, and John and a few of his friends went to Provincetown to get away. He took Eat Your Makeup and convinced another church preacher to let him screen it there. It was a pretty big success due to the publicity stunts of creating a flyer with an actress about to go down on a tube of lipstick that was handed out with a tube of actual candy lipstick. So they just stood there and handed it out to people in Provincetown. That's very William Castle of them. Uh-huh. The preacher only looked like he would faint once or twice during the screenings, John maintains. <laughs> John made only one other short, and that was called the Diane Linkletter story. But the gist of it is that Divine, playing her first lead role as TV personality in real life, Art Linkletter's troubled LSD tripping daughter Diane the film is improvised mostly and you can tell it's really just a lot of conversation you know kind of run on conversations very few cuts and John said it was just recorded to test out the new camera for another project but it's notable since you know you can actually see it online and it's kind of one of the only you know pieces of divine really early on that you know isn't a feature film yeah After the short films, and specifically the narrative success of Eat Your Makeup, John had assembled enough technique, equipment, and cast members to make his first feature-length film. He was using the name Dreamland Studios as his production company, which was basically the interior of his apartment and the yard of his parents' house at that point for doing exteriors. (laughs) But they were making it work. He borrowed $2,000 from his father, and he made Mondo Trasho in 1969. Yeah. Side note, Mondo Trasho is really hard to find. It's never been released on DVD, like officially, because he uses all unlicensed music for the soundtrack. So, of course, they can't. And some of it is so old that they can't even get the licensing for it. And so, you know, at some point, they're going to figure it out and get it out there. But that's his earliest film isn't on there specifically because of music licensing. Rough plot. As we see the opening credits, a man in a hooded outfit cuts the head off of chickens and they run around well you know the saying right 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 i will note that they were actually cutting the heads off of chickens this was not a faked type thing so no we then see blonde bombshell and john waters best friend at the time mary vivian pierce walking through the park she sits on a bench and feeds raw hamburger meat to roaches and ants suddenly a man who's been following her crawls up next to her feet they go into the woods where he shrimps her shrimp shrimping that you know that term no it's where he licks her toes it's the like an oral foot sex Hmm. shrimping all the while she moans and imagines herself in a weird cinderella scene foot stuff slippers feet come up a lot today so get ready for that once this is over she walks through the woods but gets hit by a car driven by divine in the woods she walks out of the woods like into a road yep i see where you're going divine puts her in the car to presumably help her but keeps getting distracted by visions of the virgin mary Divine is trying to get Mary Vivian Pierce in a better outfit, of course, because even though she's very hurt, she needs to look good. Of course. And gets her in a wheelchair, but they're abducted by some mental patients and held hostage where John Waters' longtime friend Mink Stoll does a topless dance. Virgin Mary shows up and blows off the door of the asylum, setting them free. Divine finally gets Mary Vivian Pierce to the doctor, played by Divine's friend from beauty school, David Lockery. I'm saying all these names because they come up a million more times. That's great. His name was Dr. Coathanger. But he's a heroin addict, and he replaces her feet with monster chicken feet. The cops show up to get Divine for shoplifting and hit and runs, but in a shootout, Divine gets stabbed. They escape, but Divine dies in a pigsty, and Mary appears and takes her to heaven. Mary Vivian Pierce 
Pierce realizes that her new monster chicken feet are able to click together and transport her home, like Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz, and everyone lives happily ever after. Aww, that's, that's lovely. Mondo Trasho wasn't exactly a mainstream hit film, of no. course. In fact, it only played a couple of places, and technically, it's a mess of a movie. Yeah. John cut the work print, so there wasn't even a negative, and it really shows when you see versions of it now. Yeah, yeah. The soundtrack, again, is all B-sides of John's 45 record collection. There were a couple of tape-recorded lines that were played over, but it's all non-sync sound, so... Is that a boy or a girl? Is it a faggot? It's a dyke. No, it's a hippie. A communist? Perhaps it's a drag queen. Or a wash rag queen. Probably a speed freak. Or a pothead. Or a mutton queen. Look at her, it's just a whore. Or maybe a gold digger. But she's a hustler. Or some sort of intellectual. (laughs) Probably a rimmer. (laughs) Maybe a speed freak. A chicken queen. Or a shrimp freak. Even John says it wasn't worthy of a full 90 minutes. But there's something really kind of amazing about it, which is namely that it takes this approach to film that really hadn't been done before this. 1967 was the summer of love in San Francisco. The Vietnam War was starting to fall apart in favor of peace and love. And Woodstock was in the summer of 1969. John Waters hated all of this. Yeah. He thought hippies were stupid, although he did like the drugs. Right. The natural and spiritual healing world was like a a joke to him. I love him for that. Yeah. He liked drag queens, makeup, petty crime, and sacrilege. Mm Mm-hmm. And this was radically different than what was happening in film at the time with dramas like Midnight Cowboy, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, yeah. and even comedies like Bob, Ted, Carol, and Alice and Alice's Restaurant. Mm-hmm. Mondo Trasha was like nothing else out there. Even though he was kind of going and looking at all these experimental films and looking at the films sure. of Andy Warhol. So it wasn't like he invented independent film. No, of course not. But he was just doing something that was completely different experimentally at the time. Sure, yeah. One other thing to note, John started to get his footing with the press during Mondo Trasho. He never bothered with permits or unions. They just went somewhere and started filming until the cops showed up and then they ran. Awesome. One day while they were shooting a nude hitchhiker that Divine fantasizes about, a cop showed up and charged them with indecent exposure. They got arrested and charged and they had to go to court, although pretty much everyone agrees that this was a ridiculous charge for 1969. It's, it's stupid. Yeah. The papers picked it up and John decided to run with it. He called the ACLU and they bailed him out and they, oh, wow. they took the case. The papers had a field day and the film got a lot more press than it would have if he had just taken ads out on it. Yeah. The premiere was sold out and the reviews were actually pretty good. The movie got some screenings in San Francisco as well and John booked it in Provincetown for midnight showings. All in all, he made some money on it and he paid his father back. Nice. He had learned how to make a movie, get it shown, work the press in his favor, and become profitable. It's not a bad start. Yep. John started gearing up for his next feature film, this time with better equipment and sync sound. He borrowed some money from his dad again, and he wrote Multiple Maniacs, a combination circus sideshow, lesbian romance, and revenge story, but most importantly, a lead role vehicle for Divine. Of course. Divine hadn't seen much fame doing John Waters' films up to this point. She wasn't even a Baltimore celebrity, just a weird overweight man that worked at a salon and did a lot of drugs. Mm-hmm. Even Divine's parents didn't know that he was doing drag or being in John Waters' movies. But together, Divine and John Waters created a kind of a template in Multiple Maniacs that would launch them both into small-time B-movie celebrity status. Right. Rough plot, the Lady Divine is the owner of the Calvalcade of Perversions, 
a type of circus sideshow that John created in the backyard of his parents' house. These assorted sluts, fags, dykes, and pimps know no bounds. They have committed acts against God and nature, acts that by their mere existence would make any decent person recoil in disgust. You want to see them, and we've got them. Every possible thing you can think of. Come on, ladies. Come right up this way. Come see Lady Divine's cavalcade. The types of things you can see in the cavalcade perversions are the puke eater, Mm. a woman licking a bicycle seat, a Mm. guy putting out cigarettes on the bare back of another guy, a guy rubbing a bra all over his face, two men lick a woman's hairy armpits as she moans, A kind of naked diaper-wearing human pyramid, a pornographer and his subject, of course, the two actual queers kissing, Mm -hmm. and finally, a man in his underwear going through heroin withdrawal. The show is free, but at the end, Divine jumps out and all the freaks rob the carnival goers. That's how they make money on the cavalcade of versions. Only this time, Divine decides she's going to kill them. She and the freaks escape the murder scene, and Divine goes home to her daughter, played by Cookie Mueller and her boyfriend. She gets a phone call from a real-life barmaid, played by Edith. Massey, who tells her that her boyfriend, David Lockery again, Mm -hmm. is sleeping with another woman. That's played by Mary Vivian Pierce. Okay. So right off the bat, we've got David Lockery, Mm -hmm. Edith Massey, Mary Vivian Pierce, and the first appearance of Cookie Mueller, all of who will show up in most of his films moving forward. Right. Divine heads down to find her boyfriend, but gets raped by two glue sniffers. Mm Mm-hmm. Then she has a vision. I don't vision. know why I laughed at that. Uh, no, it's, it's, <laughs> that's, it's that's great. Yeah. yeah, I don't know why I did that. Then she has a vision, and a child saint leads her into a church. She meets a lesbian there, played by Mink Stoll, of who course. gives her a rosary job, which is getting anally stimulated with a rosary while describing the stations of the cross. By this time, I had picked up a strong sexual vibration from the lady behind me, and I felt it was improper to move away. I felt that if I cooperated with this mysterious woman, I could somehow benefit spiritually from the experience. Little did I know what she had in mind. I felt her hand reach down and touch my leg, not at all casually, and I realized it was too late for social introduction. I was suddenly uncontrollable, and although she had only said seven words to me, these words proved to be the key to the most satisfying sexual experience of my entire life. Think about the stations of the cross. Think about the stations of the cross. Think about the stations of the cross. It was then that I realized that she was using her rosary as a tool of erotic pleasure. Oh, oh, she made me get into a kneeling position. My head was spinning. And all at once, she inserted her rosary into one of my most private parts. Second station, Jesus is made to carry his cross. Consider how Jesus in making this journey with the cross on his shoulders thought of us and offered for us to his father the death he was about to undergo. My most beloved Jesus, I embrace all the tribulations thou hast destined for me until death. I beseech thee by the merits of the pain thou dost suffer in carrying thy cross. We talked about this a little bit in Blasphemy, right? Yeah, I think you brought it up because yeah. I had missed it. Rosary job, that's what that was called. They go to coin that term. Yeah. That'll, that'll be up there with Dirty Sanchez. Uh-huh. Yep. 
They go to Cookie's house, but find that Cookie's been murdered by David Lockery and Mary Vivian Pierce. Divine ends up going on a murderous rampage in which everyone dies and then is raped by a giant 15-foot lobster. Yeah, no, that I remember. Uh-huh. Named Lobstora. For the record, that's a pretty good effect. Oh, yeah. That's that, a great That is a effect. good lobster, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it probably helps that the movie's black and white, so it might hide the shoddiness of it. You can see some of like the strings you know, that sure, they used but, to... But, but somebody put a lot of heart in that raping lobster yeah i mean that what that's yeah. one of those things that really makes a john waters movie you know we just finished talking about blood feast and you know the effects are fine but there's no attention to costumes or makeup or a f- right. you know it's just like that and that's what makes a john waters movie so unique i think i'm remembering this correctly that vincent perenio did all of the sets and he built lobstora wow it was really really very impressive, impressive. yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway, the lobster rape sends her over the edge, and she roams the streets of Baltimore, foaming at the mouth. She's gunned down by a SWAT team as God Bless America plays. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Before I move forward, I want to mention that Multiple Maniacs is John Waters' best-reviewed film. It has a rare 100% on Rotten Tomatoes, and that's pretty amazing for an independent experimental movie that has lobster rape and a crucifix penetration. That is awesome. Yeah. John talks a lot about this time since it was right after Sharon Tate was murdered by the Manson family, and John was, and still is, obsessed with the Mansons. Yeah. In fact, the original ending was supposed to be that Divine takes responsibility for the Manson murders, but they were caught during the filming, so John had to change the ending. Damn. Multiple Maniacs was immediately successful and sold out its first nine screenings in a church basement in Baltimore, with a door prize (laughs) being a pound of ground meat. He booked the film on a traveling circuit of midnight movies across the country and was met with sold-out audiences. Multiple Maniacs made it all the way to San Francisco, where it played the Palace Theater, which at the time was famous for hosting The Coquettes. Heard of The Coquettes? Um, yes. Yeah, they're a bunch of gay drag queen hippies that put on a variety musical-type show that parried Broadway and movie show tunes and drag. John was living in his car, but the film was doing well, and the theater owner flew Divine, so she flew from Baltimore to San Francisco in full drag. In full drag. In full drag. That's great. First class? or No, of course not. (laughs) And she met her adoring audience there. She stayed in San Francisco for a while after this to kind of revel in her fame. Mm -hmm. She did appearances. John wrote a nightclub act for her that had her walking onto stage with a grocery cart full of dead fish, where she chucked them into the audience. She sang songs and danced and threw glamour fits. The climax was a fake policeman running on stage that Divine strangles to death. It was fun for a while, but John was writing a new film and he needed Divine to come back to film it. Do you know what that movie is? Of course I know what that Uh is. Pink Flamingos. Pink Flamingos. Have you seen Pink Flamingos all the way through, start to finish? Yes, Mm -hmm. and you let me borrow it. I borrowed like a big chunk of his movies when you and I first met because you, of course, were like, watch this movie, Mm -hmm. and I did. It's something. We were both really into film, obviously still are, but we were into very different types of film back then. Yes and no. I mean, we... Well, I was really into Shocker, so I loved the kind of the blood feast, the necromantics, the Pink Flamingos goes types of things and what were you into i was into a lot of the art film type of stuff too i mean i like some trash but i i learned a lot more about trash cinema from you so yeah you liked you really liked kung fu movies you like science fiction stuff yeah i like dolomite back then I, i watched some exploitation but I was unfamiliar with John Waters, and you schooled me on that yeah. the hard way. What did you think of Pink Flamingos when you saw it? Have you only seen it that one time? I think I've seen... I haven't seen it all the way through. I know you're about to talk about the ending. We mm-hmm. talked about that in Bodily Fluids. But I thought it was... This is a trashy movie, but not offensive. And then the end, and I'm just like, that 
that's really nauseating. Yeah. Cool. It's really gross. Pink Flamingos was going to be John's most ambitious film at this Mm -hmm. point, and also his most polished. He rented real equipment this time and had a traditional crew and cast, and it was his first color feature film. Okay. He got the idea for the film while traveling with multiple maniacs, where he saw countless trailer parks. Mm -hmm. He loved the idea of trailer life and how horrible it must be. Right. That combined with how much he also hated the upscale suburbs that he was from, gave him the idea to do kind of like a class war film. Petty trash crime versus upscale suburbs bourbon crime good taste versus bad taste and bad taste would win oh it won big time <laughs> hello moviegoers this is mr j speaking to you for dreamland studios this beautiful mobile home you see before you is the current hideout of the notorious beauty divine the filthiest person alive because of this cover story and one of your sleazier national tabuloids she has been forced to go underground disguising her appearance and adapting the alias of Babs Johnson. With her live her trusted traveling companion, Cotton, her delinquent son, Cracker, and her mentally ill mother, Miss Edie. Let's take a peek inside. Pink Flamingo's rough plot is about Divine living under the name Babs Johnson, is an underground small-time criminal and winner of the title of The Filthiest Person Alive. Mm-hmm. She and her daughter Cotton, that's Mary Vivian Pierce, mm-hmm. her son Crackers, and mentally challenged mother Edie, Edith Massey, mm-hmm. all live in a trailer outside of Baltimore. Babs loves to shoplift, especially meat, where she can kind of, she like sticks it up in between her legs and then pulls her skirt down and then kind of like walks out of the store with mm-hmm. the meat in between oh, her yeah. legs. I remember that. Crackers picks up women and then forces them to have sex with him with a chicken involved while cotton watches and it's a, it's a real chicken a real chicken yeah and mother Edie is obsessed with eggs and eats them while sitting in a playpen wearing a bra and girdle little do they know a couple named connie and raymond marble want the title of the filthiest people alive and are plotting to steal it mm-hmm. they kidnap women and keep them chained up they impregnate them and sell the babies to lesbian couples the money is used to fund a heroin ring in elementary schools <laughs> <laughs> I forgot about all these little subplots. He's so good with a subplot. Yeah, yeah, clearly, yeah. Connie and Raymond send Divine a dog turd in the mail as a birthday gift, and Divine gets worried that her title is being challenged. Oh, oh my God almighty, someone has sent me a bowel movement! Oh, a turd, mama, a turd! Who could have sent this? Ah, a turd! Oh, a turd! Oh, Babs! This is a direct attack on my divinity, a direct attack on the peace and harmony of our last few weeks here, an outrageous attempt to humiliate and disgrace my private life. Someone will pay for this. Someone will pay with their life for this grossly offensive act. Mama, nobody sends you a turn expects to live. Nobody. Why would anybody do this to us? Why? Look, look, here's a card. Read it, Cotton. It's a birthday card. A- Fucking birthday card! So what does it say? What does it say? Oh, God, Fats. Happy birthday, Fatso. You are no longer the filthiest person alive. We are. Signed, the filthiest people alive. Oh, just as I thought. And a deliberate attempt to seize my title. They go ahead with their birthday party, which probably would have been the most controversial scene in the movie, if not for the ending. In the birthday party scene, Divine's friend brings her gifts of lice shampoo, poppers, and a severed pig head. Mm -hmm. Edie marries the egg delivery man, and he takes her off in a wheelbarrow. Mm -hmm. A topless woman dances with a snake, and then a man comes out and does a dance before throwing his legs in the air and having his anus sing along to Surfing Bird that's... Oh, well, everybody's here. 
bird, about the bird. Bird, bird, bird. Bird's a winner, well, a bird, bird, bird. Bird is a winner, well, a bird, bird, bird. Well, a bird is a winner, well, a bird, bird, bird. Bird's a winner, well, a bird, bird, bird. Bird, bird, bird. is the bird. Yep, yep. As Connie and Raymond watch on disgusted, mm-hmm. they call the cops, but when the cops show up, Divine and the party goers kill and eat them. Mm. <laughs> After the party, Divine and Crackers break into the Marbles house and lick everything before getting so wound up that Divine blows her flaccid son on camera. That, yeah, I remember mm-hmm. that. I'm not done yet. No, I know you're not done yet. Connie and Raymond burn the trailer down and Divine catches them, holds a mock trial where she finds them guilty of assholism. Then she tars feathers and then shoots them while the press watches. The three of them decide to move far away to Boise, Idaho. And to prove she's still the filthiest person alive, Divine in one take walks up to a dog taking a dump, picks up the turd and eats it. Fuck, man. That is something. So let's start with the making of the film before. We're going to talk about this dog turd scene for a minute. We, you <laughs> oh, have good. to. Thank there's God. no there's no way um, to ignore it. No. You know? All right. Pink Flamingos was made over a year or two on about $10,000 of money barred from John's dad. Mm-hmm. The trailer was bought for $100 and towed to a remote field that basically had no electricity or plumbing. They just had extension cords stretched over a mile for lighting, and the cast and crew shot on weekends in the freezing cold. You can actually see the character's breath, like, in the movie as they're talking. Right. No drugs or alcohol were allowed on set, and everyone stuck to the script because John hates improv. He wanted them to memorize their lines and read the lines exactly as written. He was not a fan of anyone ad-libbing ever. I did not know that at all. It took forever to get Divine into costume and makeup. Her hairline was shaved back to the middle of her head, specifically to make more room for eye makeup. Mm. In her most famous outfit, she wore a red fishtail dress with an orange wig accompanied with a gun. It was this image that's kind of like the famous image, you know, on the poster. Oh, yeah. A lot to cover here. So let's talk a little bit about the controversies. One of the biggest issues people had with Pink Flamingos is that they thought that it was real. A few reasons why a lot of people use their real names, including Divine. So it was like starring Divine as Divine under the name Babs Johnson. That Mm -hmm. confused people. Edith Massey played Edie. Cookie Mueller's name was Cookie in the movie. Mm -hmm. Also, a lot of the stunts in the movie weren't really stunts. Mm -mm. That chicken in the chicken sex scene really dies and its blood gets all over everything. John says it wasn't torture because they cooked and ate the chicken later that night. So he was like, it's fine. (laughs) That was I like that excuse. He's like, yeah, we we ate it, so yeah. it's, it didn't it's die totally in vain. Fine. Yeah, it's great. A woman exposes her breast and then further exposes her penis. Do you remember this scene? Mm-hmm. So she was actually one of the first transgender surgeries at, at Johns Hopkins and was a friend of John's and, of course, agreed to, you know, kind of be this, like, hot woman that then pulls out her penis. Right. It's like crying game 20 years earlier. Yep. And, of course, Raymond and Connie are shrimping each other for real. <laughs> and it, he's like, shrimping shows back up shrimping. again. Mm-hmm. And there's a real flaccid blowjob. Yep. And the performer singing butthole was very real. That was also real. This combined with the fake things, there's a castration, there's eating the police, Mm -hmm. the whole kind of subplot of the trash tabloids, it really confused people. Mm -hmm. It's one of those movies kind of like Cannibal Holocaust and the Blair Witch Project that does such a good job of fakely portraying reality that people think it's real. And then, of course, there's the scene where Divine really eats dog shit for real. How much is that dog in the window? The one with the waggly tail. John Waters and Divine spoke about the shit-eating scene before there was even a script, and Divine casually said she'd do it. John knew that it would need to be done in one take so that no one would question its validity. Mm -hmm. 
They fed the dog and kept it inside for three days. When it was time to shoot the final scene, they took the dog out and followed it around with Divine in the cast in full costume and mm-hmm. makeup. The dog wouldn't shit. <laughs> they gave it an enema, still wouldn't shit. Finally, he started to sniff around and squat. John yelled for Divine to get into the frame. She knelt down, the dog shat, Divine scooped it up and put it in her mouth. Mm. She rolled her tongue around, gagged a couple of times, and winked to the camera. And yeah. that was it. Movie history was made. Ugh, God, it's just horrible. A few hours later, when everyone was stoned, Divine got nervous that she would get sick from the dog turd, so she called the hospital and pretended to be the mother of a special needs child who had accidentally... <laughs> so fucked up. Yeah. The nurse assured him that the worst that he could get was worms, but that he'd probably be fine. Right. Pink Flamingos premiered at the University of Baltimore in 1972, and John was really nervous. He was used to walkouts, but this was the furthest he had ever gone. Yeah. Would the audience turn hostile was what he kept thinking, like there might be a riot. Only a few minutes into the movie, the audience started laughing, and he knew he had a hit. Mm-hmm. He got a standing ovation, and the show started selling out immediately in Baltimore. The local press was really kind as well, not liking that Baltimore was becoming famous for the wrong reason, but liking that it was becoming famous. Mm-hmm. John needed distribution and called New Line Cinema, who agreed to meet with him in New York, but said, quote, don't bring your friends. <laughs> <laughs> So funny. They tried to scream it at a couple of places, but it really didn't take. They shelved it for a year. So what he says was, you know, they were trying to figure out what to do with this. They were putting it in kind of like the gay theaters. And if you wanted to go see a gay movie, you saw Pink Flamingos. That's a real boner killer. You know, (laughs) that's not exactly why you go to a gay theater. Yeah, I can imagine. Like anybody that could be sexually satisfied by Pink Flamingos has got a problem. And somebody I don't want to meet. Yep. Ever. John moved to New Orleans with Mary Vivian Pierce and Pink Flamingo's actor Danny Mills and lived in squalor waiting for the movie to come out. Mm -hmm. He finally convinced the Elgin Theater in New York City to show it at midnight, one screening. Mm -hmm. He drove up there in a snowstorm and called everyone he knew to come see it. The theater was about half full, but overall the film was considered to be a success. He got another show the next week, and this time there was a line around the block. Word of mouth had done the film really, really well, and the next few shows were sold out. More midnight shows were added until Pink Flamingos was being shown seven nights a week at the Elgin. Wow. The critics stayed away for a while, but ultimately they ended up seeing it. The reviews were terrible, but also kind of wonderful. Yeah. Here are a few of my favorites. Uh, Detroit Free Press, quote, like a septic tank explosion, it has to be seen to be believed. (laughs) Variety, dregs of human perversity draws weirdo element, monstrous and called the dog shit scene the most nauseating capper in film history. That's fair. Yeah. New Line used the review headlines on the poster, so this was like one of those situations where they just took all the bad reviews and put those on the, instead of being like, my the best film of the year, they were like, worst film ever made, <laughs> and then that was on the poster. Rated X by yeah. an all-white jury. It was like that. Yeah, that's so great. they had to uh, obviously make a trailer for the film, but they couldn't put anything in the film in the trailer, so it was all just audience reactions and interviews of people, you know, kind Coming out of the theater, they didn't show any of the actual film. Yeah, this marketing strategy worked, and they started booking theaters across the country. Mm-hmm. It played can and was distributed across the world. It's obviously John's most notorious film by a long shot. Yeah, clearly. And its stars got famous as well, albeit on the underground circuit. Yeah, yeah. The name Divine and the city Baltimore were getting mentioned simultaneously, and she began making club appearances and doing interviews. Mm-hmm. If you don't know anything about Edith Massey, there's a ton of information about her online, and I'll put some links on the site. She was essentially a slow-talking, overweight, toothless barmaid up until Pink Flamingos, Mm -hmm. and after she was a star. Yeah, yeah. 
She used her fame to open a thrift shop called Edith's Shopping Bag, which mainly became the hub for the Edith Massey fan club. And Mink Stoll and David Lockery were getting other small roles on kind of off-off-off Broadway shows. Right. Everyone was dying to see what the Dreamlanders would do next. John knew he couldn't outgross Pink Flamingos. Mm-mm. Everything up until Pink Flamingos was him trying to outdo his last film, mm-hmm. and he knew it needed to stop somewhere. He decided to make more of a coming-of-age film that would rely more heavily on Divine as a lead. She wouldn't just be the lead character in this next script. He would write a movie around her. Okay. The idea he came up with was Crime is Beauty, and this time he had enough money made off Pink Flamingos to make Female Trouble, his fourth and favorite film. Have you seen Female Trouble? No. You never let me borrow it. We're going to watch it tonight. and delinquent Dawn Davenport lives in the suburbs of Maryland where all she wants for Christmas is a pair of cha-cha heels. Christmas (laughs) morning rolls around and Divine opens her present and no cha-cha heels. Oh, yeah. She gets furious and throws all the presents and knocks over the Christmas tree on top of her mother who just keeps repeating, not on Christmas, not on Christmas. (laughs) We talked about this in Bad Santa's (laughs) Go to Hell in that episode. Yep. John Waters thinks this is the funniest thing he's ever written in the history of everything. Yeah. She runs away and is picked up by a trashy old man, actually played by Divine as a man. He takes her to an old mattress on the ground in the woods and they have sex. So basically, Divine is fucking himself because he's playing the rape. They they say it's rape, but she doesn't really seem to mind. Mm -hmm. So he's playing the person that's fucking him as a woman. Some clever editing there, Uh I guess. Flash forward and she's pregnant, gives birth to a daughter, and meets a hot straight hairdresser and they get married. All is going really great. Yeah, sounds sounds wonderful. But then she gets a little older. Her daughter ends up being an obnoxious brat. It's actually played by Mink Stoll. She's like supposed to be a 12-year-old, but of course she's in like her (laughs) mid-20s. Right, right. Her husband's all weird sexually, and she starts to fall in with the wrong crowd, namely Donna and Donald Dasher, who own the Lipstick Beauty Salon. And they get Dawn to model for them under their mantra, Crime is Beauty. She starts committing small-time crimes until her husband leaves her and his aunt, played by Edith Massey, throws acid in her face. And she gets disfiguring scars all over, which the Dashers decide make her more beautiful. She gets a mohawk and her hair dyed and books a nightclub act where she kills her daughter, who converted to Hare Krishna. She does her nightclub act, which involves trampoline stunts and a dead fish, but she gets overexcited and shoots some members of the audience while screaming, I blew Richard Speck. (laughs) She gets arrested and goes to prison, eventually getting the electric chair, which is her version of winning an Academy Award. I'd like to thank all the wonderful people that made this great moment in my life come true. My daughter, Kathy, who died in order to further my career. My friend, Chicklet Consetta, who should be here with me today. All the fans that died so fashionably and gallantly at my nightclub after. <laughs> and especially all those wonderful people who were kind enough to read about me in the newspaper and watch me on the television news show. Without all of you, my career could never have gotten this far. <laughs> it is you that I murdered for, and it is you that I must die for. <laughs> Please remember, I love every fucking one of you. 
female trouble may be the best representation of the John Waters brand. Yeah. It opens with the loving suburban parents and a rebellious juvenile delinquent daughter. The disregard for school authority grades and straight meaning non drug Mm -hmm. uh, ideals that didn't really have a reason, but were just unhip. Edith Massey's character in this actually has one of the best lines in the movie. Her son is dating divine and she desperately wants him to be gay. She says, I'm going to do my impression of her. I worry that you'll work in an office, have children, celebrate wedding anniversaries. The world of the heterosexual is a sick and boring life. (laughs) (laughs) And that's kind of this world, a world where normal society really has no place. Yeah. Speaking of great lines, Mm -hmm. this one has some of the best lines of his career. Like when Divine says to her daughter, I'm afraid I'm going to have to be the one to break the news to you, Taffy. I've thrown Gator out and started divorce proceedings. I don't want to seem overly bitter, but I'd appreciate it if you would destroy all of his belongings. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. That's pretty good. She also says about her daughter, I've done everything a mother can do. I've locked her in her room. I've beat her with the car aerial. Nothing changes her. It's hard being a loving mother. (laughs) She says in her intro to the Dashers, Davenport, Don Davenport, I'm a thief and a shit kicker, and uh, I'd like to be famous. (laughs) Great. Obviously, Divine's costumes are amazing, but one costume in this kind of went down in history as one of the quintessential images from the movie, and that was Edith Massey's lace-up Fredericks of Hollywood-style leather S&M dress. I'm going to show you a picture of it. Okay. Hmm? Oh, yeah. Goodness. Wow, that is... Yep, that's a thing. Yeah, so she was probably about 300 pounds, I'd say 250, and they had to lace her into this, because you can't see it, but check it out online. It's all laced up the side, the arms are all laced up, and it's got cutouts all the way up, so you can see a lot of rolls of, of her fatness yes anyway just really wanted to show you that because that was the type of thing that you know john waters was like this is very important we need to spend a lot of money making this outfit and it looks like he spent a lot of money and edith massey actually hated wearing that dress because it took so long and of course it was very revealing and you know she was self-conscious about it but they said that after a couple years she was she wore it all the time after female trouble oh great and it kind of like fell apart and so she paid to have another one made because it was part of her brand you Mm -hmm. know Female Trouble was released in a similar way of Pink Flamingos, and it did fine. It has a self-imposed X rating, which was really odd at the time because it really didn't have any graphic sex or violence like Deep Throat or the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, both that came out the same year. And obviously, it didn't have the same shock value that Pink Flamingos had, and that was probably disappointing to a lot of people. Yeah, sure. But it was John Waters playing the long game. If he had made Pink Flamingos 2 and tried to outshock it, we probably wouldn't be talking about him right now. Yeah. Even though Female Trouble wasn't an immediate success, it holds up much better than Pink flamingos does and it has a lot of diehard fans that can quote every line of the movie Mm -hmm. and even though it seemed like a setback at the time female trouble allowed john waters to make whatever film he wanted to make and not be boxed into just making shockers right and one last thing because i'm ending this episode after female trouble john opens his book shock value with this line one must remember that there is such a thing as good bad taste and bad bad taste It's easy to discuss someone. I could make a 90-minute film of someone getting their limbs hacked off, but this would only be bad, bad taste and not very stylish or original. To understand bad taste, one must have very good taste. Good bad taste can be creatively nauseating, but most, at the same time, appeal to the especially twisted sense of humor, which is anything but universal.
Russell. I bring this up because this is what a John Waters movie is about. Mm -hmm. It's not about eating dog turds or drag queens or beehive fashions. It's good taste versus bad taste, suburban life versus trailer life, squares versus drapes, druggies versus straights underground versus mainstream. These are the themes that set the criteria for a John Waters movie and would set the standard for the next eight films that we will talk about in our next episode. All right, I'm excited to get there. All right, so that was the first part. What do you think? It's good. I've learned a lot about John Waters. I mean, I knew a bunch too because I've known you for 20-something years, so of Mm -hmm. course I'm going to learn about John Waters knowing you, but it's fascinating and he's a fascinating figure and of course I went to one of his shows and we'll talk probably talk about that more in the next episode, but he's a fascinating person to, to listen to. He's a delight. Yeah, he's an American treasure. He really is. And I recommend anyone who gets a chance to see him speak or whatever to do it. Yeah, he's much more than a filmmaker. He is a teacher. You know, he writes great books and does speeches like he's really just a delightful human being. He really, really is. All right. We will talk about Desperate Living and the rest of the John Waters films on the next episode. All right. All right. Thanks, guys. Bye. Thanks for listening to Slums of Film History. You can find us on the web at slumsoffilmhistory.com where you can find links to some of the movies we talked about today, along with pictures, videos, and additional resources. As well as Sunday Slum Day, our weekly recommendation for the best and sometimes worst films every Sunday night. If you want to keep up with us, we're on Facebook and Twitter where we share out a lot of additional content. And as always, please fact check us and let us know if we left anything out. We're not professionals, just two friends that love gross movies. And if I catch you spying and nosing around here one more time, I'm going to put you in the mental hospital. She can't help it. She's retarded. I am not retarded! Oh, yes, you are, Taffy. I had you tested when you were a little girl. A staff of doctors examined you. And maybe the reason you don't remember is that they told me you are most definitely retarded. You can tell she's retarded. Look at her face. She has the face of an old woman. Oh, it's true. Look in the mirror, Taffy. For 14, you don't look so good.